0: Really good, but it fits perfectly with our um, message this evening as we're continuing our series through uh, David, the story of the book, The Life of David. Uh, This morning, this evening, we find ourselves in 2 Samuel 1, 2 Samuel 1, as we continue looking at the life of David. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we do rejoice in your faithfulness. Even as we see that evidence in the life of David. Even in that song, it was just saying. Just a little boy with one little stone. And yet, Lord, we know that it was not that stone that conquered that giant. But it was you. It was your faithfulness, your goodness. We pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness to stand in light of your faithfulness, to be faithful ourselves, to be a testimony to the world around us, to be faithful in the things that you have called us to. We pray even in this service, Lord, that you would guide our thoughts, that you would give me boldness and authority to preach with clarity. And as the word of God is proclaimed, that your spirit would work in each and every one of us, challenging us, encouraging us, changing us, Lord, For your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I think I was about in 7th grade. 6th or 7th grade. I can't remember. But I remember it was approaching summertime. And soon, baseball, the baseball league that I played in was going to be starting up. But I needed a new glove. I'd outgrown my old ones, so my dad took me shopping to go get a new glove. And I remember looking at the store at all of the different options and taking them off and trying them on, and, and we figured out what size I need. And while we were there doing that, I, I saw this Nike glove, this, this black Nike glove, beautiful black Nike glove, and I just, I fell in love with it. That is the glove that I need. We didn't end up getting any gloves then. We figured out my size and then we left and uh, my dad was going to go back later and, as he had uh, time to, to get the right glove. A few weeks later, as, as baseball season was getting even closer, I was at a school event and my dad showed up to bring me my new glove. And I, I remember seeing him pull up and I, I ran up to the car. I was so excited to get my glove As my dad got out of the car and and brought me the bag, I I looked inside and it was not my Nike glove. It was a Mizuno glove. Who's ever heard of Mizuno? (laughs) It turns out actually that the Mizuno glove was probably a lot nicer than the Nike glove. But I was frustrated. I was disappointed and I let my disappointment be known. I'll never forget in the moment, I I, just, I, I was so frustrated and uh, I don't remember what I said. But I, I let my frustration be known to my dad and uh, normally I wouldn't do that because he wouldn't let me get away with it. <laughs> but uh, in that moment, I, I remember I said something, but I could see the pain, the disappointment in his eyes. He had actually gotten me something nicer than what I had wanted. I didn't know that. See, in reality, my reaction in that moment wasn't revealing anything about that glove. It was revealing something about my heart. The way that I reacted in that moment revealed a selfishness in me. The way I reacted in that moment revealed a fear of man inside of me. You see, the reason I wanted that Nike glove is because everyone knew Nike. Nike was cool. Mizuno, to my little seventh grade friends, Mizuno's nothing. I wanted the status. That reaction revealed a lot about me. Revealed what was really going on in my heart. It revealed who I really was. Reactions have a tendency of doing that, do they not? The way that you react reveals your heart's In fact, as we turn our attention to 2 Samuel 1 this this evening, we get a glimpse into David's heart as we watch his reactions, and I pray that we will be challenged to consider our own desires and to reevaluate our own reactions this evening. As we work our way through this passage, we're going to start with the background because it's been a while since we've been in uh, studying the life of David. Then we're going to see some bad news, and then we'll see the right response. The first thing we note in the first two verses here is the background. As I mentioned, it's been several weeks since we've found ourselves in uh, First or 2 Samuel, studying the life of David. And, and as this starts out, it says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul. Well, that's kind of a shock. We didn't see that yet. We're actually skipping over that because we're, we're studying the life of David. Um. But that takes place in 1 Samuel 31. In fact, David has just returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David stayed two days in Ziklag. Now, now there's two words that we're familiar with, Ziklag and the Amalekites. See, if you remember where we are in the story of David's life, when you back up to 1 Samuel 29, and even into 1 Samuel 30, David has, has run away from Saul and Israel. He's run down to the Philistines. He sought... Um, peace with them. He sought to, to live in peace with them. They have given him this city, Ziklag, where he has set up. He's, his army is hiding there or, or living there. But then as you come to, to chapter 29 and 30, it comes time for war. The Philistines are going to war with the Israelites and, and these Philistines who have been supporting David now expect him to go to war with them. And if you remember, David finds himself in a, in a pickle, kind of, between a rock and a hard place. But the Lord delivers him. As the other Philistine generals disagree with Achish, and they said, No, we don't, we don't want David with us. We don't trust him. Send him back. But then, as you remember, as you get into chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, David and his men return to Ziklag, and what do they find when they get there? Ziklag has been sacked by the Amalekites. And so immediately they take off in pursuit of the Amalekites. And they find them and they're able to slaughter them. And by the grace of God, not one person who was taken has been killed. They're able to get everyone back. They're able to get all of their their goods and possessions back. Simultaneously, while all of that is going on, In 1 Samuel 31, a chapter which we're not going to study, there's a battle going on between the Philistines and the Israelites. It's in that chapter when Saul and Jonathan are finally caught up to, and they're killed. So as we turn our attention to 2 Samuel 1, this is the context, the background in which we find ourselves. It came to pass after the death of Saul. Both Saul and Jonathan are dead. The battle did not go Israel's way. They were routed. In fact, in 1 Samuel 31, Saul, being cornered, having been struck with an arrow, realizes that he's going to die, but he's afraid of being captured. So he asks his armor bearer if he will kill him. His armor-bearer refuses, and so Saul falls on his own sword. His armor-bearer, checking, seeing that Saul has died, then kills himself. So all of that has gone on. David, as verse 1 tells us, has returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. But we saw in 1 Samuel 30, David and his men, they've returned from that. They've returned back to Ziklag, the city that has been Destroyed, So they are busy rebuilding. They're back for two days. On the third day, verse 2 tells us, Behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. It's a sign of mourning. Whoever this messenger is, he is bringing news, bad news from what can be seen. It comes to David, and he falls on the ground prostrate before him. Now we're caught up on the background, and we come to the bad news, verses 3 to 16. David said to him, where have you come from? And he said, I I have escaped from the camp of Israel. How did the matter go? Please tell me. And the answer, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people have fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead. Israel was routed by the Philistines. You and I probably expect at this moment that David on the inside is just, yes, my enemy is dead. My time has come. The Lord promised I would be king. Here it is at last. In fact, I, I imagine that's what this messenger expected, as we'll see. David digs a little deeper. How do, you, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? The young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. and Indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, called to me, and I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me. But my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I brought them here. To my Lord. This is a passage that many Bible critics would point to and say here is a point where, where the Bible is contradicting itself. Because one chapter earlier, we're told a completely different account of Saul's death. Whereas here in 2 Samuel 1, what this soldier tells us is completely different than what we were told by the Lord a chapter earlier but it's not really the issue that they make it out to be. See, I would submit to you that this is not something that, that doesn't line up. Rather, what this is is a lie. You would have to have a pretty low view of the author of First and 2 Samuel's to think that two chapters in a row he would get those things completely wrong. There's a reason he puts these things next to each other. He wants us to see the lie. This messenger is lying. He's putting things into what he thinks will help David to respond right how he wants David to respond. He's wanting a reward out of this. It doesn't match up with the account that we saw in 1 Samuel 31. It's pretty evident that this man is lying with the expectation that David will reward him. Most likely what happened is, is he was uh, going through the field and came to Saul. saw him dead, just happened upon him and took these things, his crown and his bracelets, before the Philistines could get there. And he brings them to David, hoping for a reward. How do you know? Not only does this... Messenger brings a story, he brings evidence Saul's crown and Saul's bracelet. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. This is not the response that Amalekite was hoping for. It is not the response, most likely, that you and I expected. David immediately goes into mourning. In fact, what you see here, too, is not just David's response, but the response of his men. Which speaks to David's leadership. These are the same men who, in two earlier opportunities, when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but David chose not to, his men were encouraging him. Do it! God has delivered him into your hand. This is your enemy. Slay him! And yet, note the change in David's men. How they have not affected David's view, but David has had an effect on them. As David mourns in this moment, his men are not in the background rejoicing. His men are mourning with him. They mourned and wept and fasted. Even as we read earlier, a time to rejoice and a time to mourn. This is a time to mourn. Israel's king is dead. Israel was routed in a battle. They mourn, they fast until evening for Saul and Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Note here that though Saul, all throughout this book, driven by jealousy, has viewed David as his enemy, David never viewed Saul as his enemy. And that's exactly what we see here in this response. David did not view Saul as his enemy at all. He always viewed him as the Lord's anointed. David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he said, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. The idea there of a son of an alien or a sojourner, it's one who lived in Israel, therefore subject to Israel rules. However, the issue here is, if that is true, then this man should have known that Saul was the Lord's anointed. They should have known and honored the king instead of killing him. David sees this as not an excuse at all. And David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That was not your place. That's not your right. Who do you think you are? David called to one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you. You yourself told me that you killed him. It's not the reward that this man expected. Yet note also that this is not a response by David that is just driven by emotion in the moment. Note that David took the time. He mourned all day. It's not that in that moment, as that man brought his news, that David, mourning just in the midst of the throes of emotion, kill this guy. He mourns. And he acts with purpose. He mourns and he pursues justice. This is not a spur of the moment decision. David has taken the time to mourn, to react rightly to the news, and then he deals with the circumstances that come with that news. How might we make better decisions if we would take the time to work through our emotions, our feelings? before dealing with the situation I am thankful that my parents many times growing up I remember I would I would do something and I'm sure my parents were very very frustrated with me but I always remember they would send me to my room they would settle in settle down and then they would come in and then we would talk about what would happen and then discipline would follow It wasn't a discipline in the moment driven by frustration or emotion. I always knew that my discipline was just and righteous and coming from the right place because my parents took the time to pause and react rightly in the moment. So we see the bad news, and as you come to the end of this chapter, you see the right reaction. David continues to respond rightly. He lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. He told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. And there's this song, the song of the bow. It really begins in verse 19 with the chorus, if you will. This repeated phrase throughout this song, how the mighty have fallen. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. That is not meant as a dig at Saul, almost as we use it today. You know, when someone does something and you're like, oh, how the mighty have fallen. That's not the way that David means it here. This is coming from the bottom of his heart. The mighty truly have fallen. In fact, verse 20. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Don't don't let this news get out. I do not want to see the Lord's anointed, I don't want to see his name dragged through the mud. I do not want to see him dishonored. I don't want to see those who feared him now rejoice in his death. Don't let this news go through the Philistines. Next he goes on to to really almost even curse where this took place. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you nor fields of offerings for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. In their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. Note that David here is not taking this opportunity to tear down Saul and build himself up. This is a song that he is spreading around. He has said, take it to Judah. Don't take it to Ashkelon, but take it to Judah. How daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. A reference there to the fact that Saul's reign was one that brought luxury to Israel, a time when they thrived. How the mighty have fallen, he returns. In the midst of the battle, Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. That line there, surpassing the love of women... One commentator noted that likely that is a reference. If you remember when, when David slew Goliath, there was a promise that whoever would sl- slay Goliath would get to marry uh, the king Saul's daughter. And that relationship was all had all kinds of issues, if you remember, as Michael uh, and David were married and then Saul took her away again. And what David's really getting at here, is that the connections he made with Jonathan brought much more fruit than the political connections he had through his wife. Jonathan, as a friend, cared more for him. And the Lord used that relationship to to do more in David and to help him and encourage him more than even the political connections of being married to the king's daughter. All the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is not the reaction that we would expect David to have. I don't think it's the reaction that I would have had. In fact, this evening, as we've considered David's reaction to the news of Saul's death, we are getting a glimpse, as I mentioned earlier, into David's heart. And what we see here is a man who is submitted to the Lord and his plan. David mourns truly for the death of Saul and for Jonathan. Because David is submitted to the Lord and to his plan. David does not gloat over the death of an enemy and the prospects of power. Rather, he mourns over the death of the Lord's anointed. He mourns of the defeat of God's people at the hand of her enemies. Is that not part of what makes David such a great leader? Is that he is more concerned with the good of the people than with his own career development? David's focus here is not on what this means for him personally. He's mourning for his nation. In the depth of David's mourning reveals the true loyalty of his heart. This is not just a show of mourning whipped up last minute because it's the right thing culturally to do. This is the deep mourning of a man who truly loves the Lord and his people. This is the response of a man whose heart is in the right place, a man who is submitted to the Lord. Speaking of baseball, in that baseball league I played in before every baseball game that we played, we would line up with the other team and quote what they called the True Winner's Creed. A true winner always does his best, never to the glory of self, but always to the glory of God. With the Lord's help, I will strive to be a true winner today. Brothers and sisters, that's where David's heart was. Never to the glory of self, but always to the glory of God. Whether you win or lose this week by the world's standards, brothers and sisters, strive to be a true winner this week. Never to the glory of self, but always to the glory of God. So, as we come to the end of this chapter, I would encourage you search your own heart. What has control of your heart? Are you committed to your will or to the Lord's will? What would your reactions say? How would you react if that thing that you love was taken away tomorrow? Or maybe even more revealing, if that thing that you love, if you got it tomorrow... What would your reactions reveal about your hearts? To be submitted to the Lord's will is to react rightly regardless of the outcome. Recognizing that He is the Lord. He is on the throne and His will is best. It is David's submission to God's will that allows him to react rightly to these circumstances. What are your reactions say about your heart? Are you submitted to the Lord's will? I would encourage you, don't just dismiss those questions, but truly search your heart. Those are questions that are easy to answer. Yeah, sure. But it's a lot different when the rubber meets the road. We're going to close with the song Bow the Knee. A submission to God, a sovereign ruler of all. Let's stand together. It's hymn number 13, Bow the Knee.